Meanwhile, in Justice League International Special Number 2, featuring The Huntress, cover dated 1991. Hello, and welcome to the Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. This episode is another of our Meanwhile episodes. In these Meanwhile episodes, we break from like the usual numbering issues uh, to provide a chance to look at the JLI outside of the monthly series. Now, in this case, we're going to be covering Justice League International Special Number 2, featuring The Huntress. By the way, if this is your first time here, my name is The Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host. But guess what? I have brought along a friend. In fact, each episode, I invite a guest to help me cover whatever the comic is we're covering. So my co-host today is a fellow podcaster. She's incredibly kind, and she's probably far too nice to actually be recording a podcast with me. Uh, Several years ago, she made the horrible mistake of giving me one of the biggest ego boosts of my life when she recognized me in line at a comic book convention. Me? Seriously? It made me feel like a celebrity. Uh, I guess maybe I shouldn't be completely flattered, because her choice in friends is a little questionable. After all, she does hang around in the same podcast network as Tim Price. Uh, Folks, please help me welcome Miss Laura. Laurel, welcome to the New York Embassy, Laurel. Thanks for being here. How you doing? Thank you so much for having me, Shag, and thank you for such a nice uh, introduction for me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I remember finding you guys in line and being so excited and running up, I'm one of your nuclear subs. I'm so excited. <laughs> I think that is the first time anyone has ever recognized us in public for not committing a crime. So that was, uh, <laughs> it was really heartwarming, and we are like, we tried to take a picture together, and that didn't come together, so you, you, you've always been like the mystery person. We don't have, a, no photo exists of you, which not which isn't. <laughs> true but and uh no it was wonderful meeting it was so nice and then you know folks behind the curtain i always try and write like a funny intro like picking on the person i couldn't think of anything to pick on laurel she's too nice so uh that's why tim that's why you got the boot buddy so (laughs) so i've been asking laurel to be on the show for several years and laurel very kindly says uh no go away now and so what finally took uh to get over that hurdle was this issue about the huntress i'm like wait laurel's on the huntress podcast this is perfect symmetry so i twisted her arm and she agreed to be here today, and I'm so glad you did. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Shaq. You always make me feel good. Thank you. Aw. Well, that's one person in the world, so there we go. (laughs) That's the one good deed I have to do, people, and then I can go back to being irredeemable. (laughs) So let me ask you here. So for the people at home, just to set the stage a little bit, this is, uh, again, Justice League International Special featuring The Huntress, but if I'm not wrong, I mean, this could kind of be issue number 20 of The Huntress series that just ended at this point. Is that fair to say? Oh, definitely. Definitely. That's how that's how I felt like we covered it on the Huntress podcast. It is basically issue 20. I don't know why it didn't get published that way, but that's something we definitely were like, why is this even in here? Because it works with them not even being in it, the, the Justice League. It, it's sort of odd. I think perhaps it was a way to show that she needed to not be in the Justice League so that when mm. they go forward with her, it would make sense. Okay. You know, maybe that was a consideration. I don't know. I'm honestly not sure because I don't know the whys and wherefores of publishing. That's not exactly my forte. (laughs) But 
I, they, there is that three month gap between the 19 and this special. So I'm wondering if number 20 maybe was written and they decided that they wanted to publish it somehow or, you know, I don't know why that would be. And then, yes, there is another two year gap then until she pops back up in Detective Comics. And at that point, they have changed her origin because I don't know if you're aware of this. The origin of her here, she's from New York, mm-hmm. where most people know her as from Gotham. Right, right. So they changed that as well. So I'm not quite sure what that two-year gap, what the decisions were behind the scenes there. Obviously, something more was going on than what we know. I know that when they brought her back, it was like a, a soft reintroduction. You know, uh, they made a pretty big deal about it, and they wanted her to be essentially a part of the Bat family. So I think that's probably where the rewriting was. I mean, I don't know if they openly contradicted the 19-issue series. I don't remember, as far as besides just New York versus Gotham. But they definitely were trying to reintroduce her as like kind of, this is the post-crisis version, even though we already had one for a while. I think part of the problem is that originally the Huntress was Helen Wayne. That was an Earth 2. Mm-hmm. So she's the daughter, obviously, of Batman and Catwoman. You can't have that after Crisis. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. So they made this Huntress character to sort of be that role. And they've manipulated her background in such a way that I, I don't understand why they did certain things as far as how they set her up. And we can talk about that later. Um, but so when they do this series, it's sort of its own thing. When Chuck Dixon gets a hold of it, yes, he changes more than just the Gotham bit. Mm. Um, she says she's been out of things for a while while. She's now using her money, which she does not in this series. She doesn't touch it, really. Of course, she's got the illustrious 90s mullet. (laughs) 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 And she's also now a teacher, which she's not in this. Okay. Uh, This series, she's very isolated, and I think what her discoveries are and what's happened to her, the trauma in her background is slightly different than what Mm. Dixon is working from. But then Chuck Dixon also writes a 1994 series where he goes back and does use some of the psychological things that she has going on, but doesn't quite use the continuity. People who are dead are now alive, that kind of thing. Oh, right. So I'm not sure where his mindset was or what his directions were, or if they just said, hey, here's the character we want her to fit in here. Do the best you can. Well, I'm going to drop a hot take here for some of the people listening. My preference is Helena Bertinelli versus Helena Wayne, which is going to upset a lot of my JSA friends. But the Helena Bertinelli from the... You know, I, I, I can't vouch specifically at the beginning of the her, her Chuck Dixon run, but just that post-Robin 3 era Helena Bertinelli that went into Birds of Prey and all that, that that's my Huntress. That's the Huntress I prefer. I adore that version. So, uh, sorry JSA fans. Helena Wayne was never quite my bag. Now, I, I got to say, one of the interesting things about this special, too, is this is, like we said, it's wrapping up the Huntress ongoing series. And yet, the, the previous Justice League International special, which was all about Mr. Miracle, the whole point of that was to actually springboard to get people to go read the Mr. Miracle book because they were doing a big story. They were launching a new new focus, new era, and they wanted people to go over and read this. So they used it as a springboard, whereas this is more like a closing chapter. So it's really strange. I mean, the only thing that really is the connective tissue there is she was a member of the team, but Andy Helfer was the editor of both books. So that's the piece that, that just really uh, stands out. And also, by the way, folks, if you never read this, just so you know, this is not a Giffen and Dematteis book. We don't typically cover non-Giffen and Dematteis stuff, but I felt like with Huntress and the coverage we've done with her and the fact it's a special, I felt it's worth covering. So uh, just giving you that heads up right now. But you know, before we get too deep into this, because uh, we got a lot more to talk about with Huntress, I think, uh, we do need to take a second to thank our sponsors. Uh, folks, this episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trade 
trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off, with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, uh, we'll bring a, a collected edition to discuss from the InStock Trades library. Usually, it's going to be tied to that month's issue that we're covering in some way, shape, or form. I brought Huntress Origin Trade Paperback. So, uh, as, I, as I just besmirched Helen, <laughs> Helen away, now I'm promoting her, right? That, that was uh, ironic. <laughs> I mean, I don't hate this version, and I still respect her. I'm just saying my version's the later version. Either way, uh, it's just a great trade, though. It collects, you know, her first appearances, you know, in DC Superstars, Batman Family, all the Wonder Woman appearances. Uh, the writer is Paul Levitz. The artist is Joe Staten. Cover art is by Brian Ballin. It's 224 pages. You get all the early stuff with Huntress. Again, I, I realize what I just said, but it doesn't mean that these aren't still enjoyable comics to read, so you should check them out. Normally, it retails for $19.99, but you can get them for 42% off right now, so it's only $11.59 for the Huntress Origin trade paperback. Well worth your time, folks. Well, I can sweeten the deal on that a little bit. Ooh, because please the do. Huntress podcast, we are all-inclusive, so we also do cover every other episode, Helena Wayne Huntress. So we are oh. working ourselves through this book, so, you know, sweeten the deal there. There we go. Awesome. Fantastic. You could read right along. Look at that, people. So uh, at this point, I do, I almost called you Helena. Uh, at this point, I <laughs> asked people to, uh, the guest, if they brought something from the Instructorates Library. All the cool kids do, Laurel. Did you happen to bring something to promote? Yes, I did. I went ahead and brought Batman No Man's Land Trade Paperback Volume 1, and this is 544 pages, so it's quite the thing. It wow. says, for the first time, the classic Batman epic is collected in full, including chapters that were never before collected. Starting with these stories from Batman Shadow of the Bat, 83 to 86, Batman 563 to 566, Detective Comics 573 to 5, excuse me, 730 to 733, <laughs> Azrael 51 to 50, Batman Legends of the Dark Knight 116, 118, and Batman Chronicle 16. So, whoo, a lot of comics. You thought you were going to pass out from amount of oxygen there. Are you okay? <laughs> and it says, uh, months after a cataclysmic earthquake, the last remaining citizens of Gotham City live amid a citywide turf war in which the strong prey on the weak. I have to say, the Huntress has quite the roles that she plays in this thing. Mm-hmm. I think it shows off a lot of different aspects of her character. We also have, spoiler alert, she is dressed up as Batgirl at the beginning <gasps> of this thing, and it is the Cassandra Kane Batgirl outfit. She's mm-hmm. actually the one that created it. So that's in the No Man's Land saga, as well as her in her Huntress persona. Uh, this puppy, we've got Denny O'Neill, Greg Rucka, Devin Grayson, Ian Eddington, of others as writer, artist Roger Robinson, Dale Eaglesham, Frank Tarrin, Jason Pearson, and the list goes on and on. Uh, the trade was twenty nine ninety nine. The list price here in InStock Trades is fourteen ninety nine. You save fifty percent off. Oof, man. I love No Man's Land. It is so stinking good. I mean, I, I read it when it was coming out. I own these trades, at least at least one of the versions. I don't, they, they've recollected it so many times. I don't know if I have this exact one, but I, I have the four-volume set of the trades. Um, oh, sorry, I was turning around to look at them. Uh, it's such a great story. And Huntress, I mean, she really gets a chance to shine in here. I mean, some, some not great stuff happens, too, to the character, unfortunately, but it's a, it's a great collection. Yeah, you get to see the passion that's there, I think, and sometimes that comes through in ways that we don't like. But on the other hand, she's not a character to shy away from, hey, I made this decision. If I mess it up, I'm going to fix it. I will defend the innocent and the weak with every ounce of strength in my body. Mm-hmm. 
So if you want to look at it from those perspectives, you know, that's where I see that she had a good role in here. She gets slightly manipulated by Batman in the end, so that's a thing, because, yeah, her and Batman don't always see eye to eye. It, that, that relationship is so messed up in this these post-crisis era. He treats her like crap. I mean, it's unreasonably like crap. It's horrible. Yes, we, we talk about that to some extent. I think part of the problem, again, is because she was supposed to be Batman's daughter. Mm-hmm. And why he's rejecting her, I don't completely understand. Her seeking his approval so assiduously would have made sense if it was a father. Yeah. Where her seeking approval of somebody that's sort of just maybe a role model as far as how to be a huntress in Cry for Blood, they do yeah. make it that he's, you know, he's her inspiration. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And, you know, you do sometimes rebel against you know, your father figure because, you know, you're the child trying to find your own way kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I also think part of the problem is she's not a afraid to speak her mind and that tends to be a problem for him because it's his way you know yeah that's true she does want to do things her own way and speak like you said speak her mind so and he's uh pretty authoritarian if you don't do it his way oh well folks uh for these and all your other trade paperback needs please visit instocktrades.com so this episode is also sponsored in part with your patreon support because you know running the firewater podcast now so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and other services and things like that and a while back we realized we needed some help and you guys really stepped up through the patreon and we really sincerely appreciate it and if you're enjoying the jli podcast the best way to support the show is by visiting our patreon at patreon.com slash fw podcast and consider supporting the firewater podcast network and at certain tiers, you'll get mentioned on your show of choice, just like these folks who asked to be recognized on the JLI podcast. So our thanks to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, David Ace Gutierrez, DC Dave, Devin Clancy, George Van Note, Gord Tolden, John Coos, John Ross Haynes, Kevin Wetter, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Michael Crouch, Mike Zamkowski, Patrick McMullen, Roger Preeb, Rudy Castillo, Sean Ross, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, and Tim Price. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Now, folks, this is where you come in. Go out on the social media, use our hashtag, poundfwpodcast, tag us at JLI Podcast. I want to hear your thoughts on The Huntress. I want to hear your thoughts on this particular special. I want to hear your thoughts on The Huntress Podcast. You know, this is all about building an online community of fans around the JLI, and in this case, the Huntress. So please be part of the conversation. Um, now, if they wanted to tag you, Laurel, or the Huntress Podcast, what would be the best handle for them to tag? Well, we are at Huntress Podcast on Twitter. You can find me at Mountainflower1, and that is without the vowels. So it's MTNF. LWR1, either one of those. And we also have the huntresspodcast.com where all our shows are located. And that also includes the Birds of Prey podcast, Feathers and Foes, and the Outcasters, which I think you might listen to with Tim Price that you so nicely said nice things about at the beginning of the show. <laughs> Tim's a good sport. It's always fun to pick on him. <laughs> so yeah, we have a lot going on if you visit the huntresspodcast.com. So definitely check those out, folks. And again, get on the social media, be part of this conversation. Go to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments on the show post for this episode as well. We want to hear what you have to say. One of the things I want to talk about, we'll just do it right now, is Huntress's costume, right? So it's going through a lot of permutations. Here she's got, you know, I, I call it the uh, the one-piece bathing suit costume. But my favorite is the, again, the one from uh, around that the, the Detective Comics era where it's pretty much covering everything except her head. That's the version I like. Uh, and not necessarily the Birds of Prey one where you can tell if she's got an innie or an Audi belly button. So... <laughs> I don't know. What's your favorite Huntress costume? Uh, the belly window shirt works to an extent. <laughs> 
you know, it was really cool at the time. You know, we were all like, wow, that's interesting. But there's a little bit after that in the Birds of Prey series where she morphs into a full body again. And that pretty mm. much is my favorite because the, the cross pattern stays, which is nice without it being this big, you know, that big purple X that she ends up with in the full body versions through mm-hmm. most of the 90s. So that kind of goes away and it's more like, you know, more of a cross ah, white okay. on a dark background. And that works a lot better. And I think once you fill in that belly window, that outfit works quite well. <laughs> I'll never forget that joke. So I, I think it was maybe Barbara or Black Canary said it to her. Like, you know, Mr. Freeze can tell if you've got an E or an Audi. That just cracked me up. Um, so, all right. So, Laurel, I got to ask you, what is your origin story with the Huntress? How did you discover the character? What made you fall in love with the character? Well, I knew her, like you, through the Bat books. Mm-hmm. It didn't know a whole lot about her. I read uh, The Cry for Blood, Greg Recker miniseries, of course, mm-hmm. when it came up. But I wasn't, like, latched onto the character. I mm-hmm. loved her in Birds of Prey. When they added her to that cast, I think she got a lot more depth um, than she had in, in a long time. And I enjoyed that. But really, it's we were covering Birds of Prey. Um, AJ asked me to be on that podcast. And when we did get to the Gail Simone run, he said, you know, Huntress is my absolute drop favorite character. Mm. And he wanted to start a Huntress podcast. Would I join on with that? I thought, yeah, you know, I can read along. What the heck? So the two of us are sort of going along. We ended up adding Diane. Like I said, she's a little bit more knowledgeable, perhaps, than the two of us. <laughs> but I think we bring a passion to that, I hope, that people like. What I think we've learned over time is she was dubbed the angry one, but she's so much more complicated than that. I think that's what I'm coming to see and coming to really, really like. If you actually read what she does and what she's not just what people say you can see a complexity there and a deep passion. She's tough and determined. She's not afraid to speak her mind. She can do the detective bit. She does have mob contacts. Sometimes she uses them. Sometimes she fights them. If the situation is for, you know, we have an all-out brawl going on, yeah, she'll be part of that. That's not a problem. But she has this vulnerable, compassionate side that I don't think people quite understand. She protects others, the helpless, the innocent, and she fights beyond anything you can imagine for those people. She also has the guilt from living as the mafia princess once upon a time. Mm -hmm. So you add that to the character and now you get some understanding that, you know, some of that anger at losing her family. And in this particular series, 89, she's got some other serious background. This is a very adult comic. So um, I hate to bring this down a notch, but she was had an incident of being molested as a child. So we have that. We have her um, extended family was all present at a party for her her when they were all murdered and she survived it. Hmm. So you've got major PTSD, major trauma going on, as well as, you know, the guilt, the self-worth. You've got a lot of issues and anger does go along with that. So the fact that she's an angrier person is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes she's also dubbed angry simply because she's not afraid to speak her mind. She's an adult. She should be taken seriously and she's sick of all these people not taking her seriously and not listening to her. Is it because she's a woman? Yeah, I think sometimes that it. Is it because Batman is so controlling? Yep, sometimes that's what it is. But she created this Huntress character because she didn't want to be afraid anymore. She had all these horrible things happen to her. She was worried about people hunting her down and killing her that killed her family. So basically, at first, especially in this particular series, she thinks of it almost as another person. That she wanted to create somebody that would never be afraid, would never run, whose first instinct is to fight back. And so I don't think that she always realizes that that has made Helena Bertinelli stronger. 
So you see that sort of dichotomy, that pull between the version of her that's vulnerable and the frightened part, and how she's overcome that to make sure that nobody else is going to do that on her watch. Mm. You put all that together into one package, and it makes for a really complex, lovely character to follow. You never know what she's going to do next, because if there's a problem, she goes right at it. And it's beautiful. It's it's wonderful how she manages things, because she's someone with no powers taking on all kinds of threats, and those do include... What am I? Metahumans and all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, this is comic books. Of course, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. (laughs) And yet she keeps up with the best of them. And that's why we love her. I never thought of all those layers. Like I knew instinctively I liked this uh, post-crisis version of Huntress. And I liked her because she was no nonsense. I liked her that she had a a harder edge to her where she – you felt like she wasn't going to cut the criminals a lot of slack. I I didn't think through all the layers like you just described, but that's fascinating. I – um. I'm trying to think, you know, part of the thing that always stuck with me that I didn't like, and we already referenced a little bit, just regarding the way Batman treated her, was that she wasn't the bad boy or bad girl, let's just say, you know, of the group. She just didn't, she's one of the few people in the Bat family that didn't grow up with Batman as their boss. I mean, she came up independently. She did this on her own. She didn't need Batman to train her, which I always thought was fantastic, which also gave Batman an excuse to be too hard on her. Uh, And it seemed like that was her only role in the Bat family for a long time was for Batman to tell her what she did wrong. And that just drove me crazy. I felt like that was incredibly unfair. And then Gail Simone, as you mentioned, takes takes control of the character and does amazing things with Helena there. And so she's kind of out of the Bat family. So I feel like in some ways, uh, part of the reason the Batman family kind of brought up Jason Todd and Damien is like they had to have someone else in the Bat family to pick on all the time and say <laughs> he was doing it wrong, right? And so Huntress, I'm glad she got out from under that Batman thumb and got to be more of an independent character rather than just being the one in the Bat family who didn't cooperate. Because she's so much more. You're right. I mean, she... Uh, I'm struggling for words here because I'm just talking off the top of my head. But I, again, the forthright, not quite vengeance, but being there to protect the person who can't protect themselves uh, always really stood out for me. And I love that version of her. Now, that wasn't my first exposure. My first exposure goes all the way back to her earliest appearances because I was a big, big fan of the early JSA stories in, um, from the late 70s, the All-Star Comics ones, where she was first part of the team. The uh, Helena with, Wayne version. Yes, the Helena Wayne version. And that version never really did a lot for me. Uh, I also have the first, one of the first comics I ever owned was Justice League 171, which was the death of Mr. Terrific, where she was there and she was talking to Earth One Bruce Wayne, so it was kind of weird, like the daughter was talking to the uncle, essentially, kind of thing. But that that version didn't stick with me. It wasn't again until they, t- they put her in Detective Comics, and then really in Robin 3 is when I really, really started rooting for the character. And, uh, and just silly other stuff, but like, uh, they made an action figure for her uh, in the 1990s, and I can't remember if it was the total Justice line, or it had started being called the Justice League Amer- or JLA line. I can't remember. It's, it's the same publisher, the same same molds and everything. They just changed the packaging. But either way, they made a Huntress figure. It was absolutely outstanding. It was actually the best figure of that entire line. I still have it. Uh, it sat on my desk for years, even though I, you know, I, I, I don't think of myself as like the world's biggest Huntress fan. The figure was so amazing, and I liked the character enough that it sat there for years. So uh, she's, a, she's a great character. It's a great look. I think a lot of her, and I'm really glad we're getting a chance to cover this. Well, I definitely think uh, modern appearance-wise, in that big 90s gap, her relationship with Robin was particularly good. Mm-hmm. We we were very much rooting for, we wanted more of Huntress-Robin team-ups. Mm-hmm. Because she does that again later. Um, he He's always spoken up for her. 
And so that relationship was just touching. So, you know, when you talk about, well, we picked her up and she didn't have a good relationship with Batman, but she did have good relationships with other people. Yeah, that's true. Her and Nightwing uh, got funky, if I remember, yeah, kind of early caused, on too, right? That caused a lot of problems because Oracle, Barbara Gordon, man, she yeah. just held that against Helena for forever and a day. Yeah. But we were on a break. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we get into this, folks? This is Justice League International Special Number 2, published by DC Comics, cover dated uh, just as 1991. The actual on-the-shelves date was November 13th, 1990. Cover price was $2.95. Now, that's huge. That is a massive price tag compared to the regular monthly series, which is only going for a dollar at this point. But you do get 38 pages of story. The cover is by Joe Staten and Bob Smith. Laurel, would you like to describe the cover for us? Sure. It is. Justice League International Special is listed at the top. We've got this blue border that it's on. And then the Huntress logo is quite prominent on here. Mm -hmm. The picture is we've got the Huntress in the center with Martian Manhunter, Blue Beetle, Fire and Ice. And they're surrounded by what are most likely supposed to be mobsters with guns. Mm -hmm. Everybody pointing at them in the center. I like how there's also kind of a spotlight effect on them where like you can actually see the the circle in the ground around them and the lighting. It almost looks like there should be a symbol under there, almost. Oh, but yeah, not it does, quite. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah you're it, right. I always yeah. wondered, was there supposed to be something there? <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't... The figures are so tiny, even I think if this hadn't had that blue border, I don't know if you have a problem with that, too. They seem awful small. They do. They, I have a huge problem with the blue border. I can't stand it. Uh, it totally shrinks the artwork. Now... I get why they do it, because the Huntress, unfortunately, is not the selling point here, even though her logo is the biggest. The selling point for this comic is that it's just like International, because we know, you know, from historically, you know, you and I can see with, with hindsight, obviously the Huntress wasn't strong enough to carry her own series. So, or wasn't popular, that series wasn't popular enough, let's put it another way. Whereas Justice League was doing really well, so they wanted the selling point to be Justice League, so by doing the blue border, it kind of makes the Justice League International special pop. You kind of see that a little stronger there, even though Huntress logo is bigger. Also, uh, special number one did something similar where they had a border like this as well, except that was, uh, it was like bricks. Uh, it was designed to look like bricks on a wall, but it had this sort of border around it as well. I, I don't love the blue border. I wish it wasn't there, but I understand from a selling point why they did it. I mean, I bought this comic, even though it really tangentially has very little to do with Just League International. I bought it simply because it was a tie-in with JLI. Other than that, I mean, I think the guys with the guns look pretty pretty cool. I mean, there's so many of them. It's just like such a large, large mass of people. And all the fedoras. <laughs> right? <laughs> and who knew they made jackets in that many colors, right? Um, so, I mean, if you, and if you really think about the characters here, I mean, Blue Beetle, if he gets a gunshot, he's gone. You know, uh, Fire, it, as, as, as long as she stays in human form, if she gets a gunshot, she's dead. Ice, maybe he'll be able to put up an ice shield in time. I'm not sure. Huntress, you know, very vulnerable. Now, Martian Manhunter is the one that sticks out like a or thumb. He's like, okay, it's Superman and a bunch of flesh bags is what this basically is, is what you're kind of looking at, you know, because Martian Manhunter is about as powerful as Superman. So he's, he's like, this is not a problem for him. Sort of, but you know, they make these circles for effect, but if they really opened fire, which is what you're talking about, they'd all hit each other. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> Maybe that's Martian Manhunter's plan. He's going to go intangible and let them all shoot each other, except uh, his friends will be caught in the crossfire, I guess. <laughs> 
I don't know. Well, why don't we get into this? So, the writer is Joey Cavallari. Uh, penciler is by Joe Staten. Inker is Pablo Marcos. Uh, t- the tones, it says tones, not... Uh, it's interesting, a way to, to phrase it. Mark Nelson. Letter is Albert de Guzman. Colorist is Tom Zucchio. Assistant editor is Kevin Dooley. And editor is Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called Burning Bridges. Now... Quick note for all you people at home who've ever been a guest of the show, whoever hoped to be a guest of the show. Laurel wrote the whole synopsis, people. <laughs> I didn't have to write half of this. She did all the work. That makes her the best guest ever. So thank you so much, Laurel. So you want to start us off by reading the recap you brought? I, I can. I feel that I must put out there that, you know, I did write this for another class and, and steal it for this one. I don't know if that's considered plagiarism. <laughs> Okay, issue. Burning Bridges. Helena Bertinelli has moved to outside New York City with James, a young boy staying with her. She sees a newspaper photo with the headline, Hunter Terrorizes City, Mob Avenger Stalks Streets. She crumples up the paper and stomps inside to plan a trip back to the city. Helena flashes back several months. Tony, her former bodyguard and trainer, was terribly upset she was giving up on being the huntress and leaving the city with James. Calling her a quitter, he took her huntress equipment, vowing to continue the fight alone. Back in the present, Helena is denied entrance to the Justice League International's New York Embassy by Blue Beetle, who doesn't recognize her outside of costume. Martian Manhunter intervenes, and she asks the Justice League to look after James while she goes after the hunter, explaining that James has many enemies. In the embassy, Helena finds another article in the paper and gets even more outraged when she learns this hunter seems to be protecting mobster Angelo the Brickwall Brancati from enemies, even if that means killing cops. While she's not happy to learn Maxwell Lord has her costume and equipment duplicated without her knowledge, she does quickly don the costume Kilowog provides and heads out alone. Meanwhile, one of the police officers Huntress worked with in the past, Detective O'Shea, has a sobering discussion with his wife about the state of the city and the high placed five cops killed in the last two months. Perhaps his cynical partner, Detective Fiorella, was right all along. These vigilantes, they gotta go. After his wife leaves, Hunter surprises O'Shea by tapping at his window. He's not exactly happy to see her, but she reassures him the sooner she gets Hunter, the sooner she leaves New York. O'Shea relents and shares the case file with her. The cops that were killed all previously worked as beat cops in the Williamsburg section. The final member, Bessemer, could be the next target, but he suspiciously refused police protection. Huntress picks up Bessemer's trail and follows him as he heads to the Williamsburg area, where he enters a pub he used to frequent with his now-dead buddies. When Bessemer emerges from the pub, the hunter attacks him. Bessemer grabs a shotgun out of his bag and comes up firing. When the hunter tries to retreat, he's caught up in a tripwire snare set by the huntress. On the roof, she pulls off the hunter's mask, saying she always knew who he was. I'll take it from here. So we switch back to the Justice League Embassy, where Blue Beetle is uh, completely into the suspense, spying on the hunters with a miniature camera and sound pickup he planted on her. James splashes some chemicals on a beetle, giving James time to corrupt the monitor signal from the huntress. So Beetle grabs James by the back of his coat and teleports them to the hangar where his ship, the Bug, is stored. He's trying to get to the hangar doors to open by voice command when he's confronted by Martian Manhunter and Ice. Apparently, Beetle broke protocol and left Monitor duty to try and leave on an unauthorized trip. 
Back on the rooftops, Huntress confronts the hunter whose mask is off and is revealed to be Tony, her former bodyguard and trainer. She smacks him around and demands to know why he's killing cops. Tony explains that Brancati has learned Helena was the Huntress. So Tony made a deal. He would take care of Brancati's enemies and Brancati would leave Helena alone. So as she helps Tony down the fire escape, a team of Brancati's men find them. Brancati orders the two to be taken to the abandoned Williamsburg Bridge. But as they're being loaded into the car, here comes a load of cops, all sirens blaring. In the ensuing firefight, Tony is hit. And Huntress gets into the driver's seat and zooms out of the crossfire. But Tony tells her it's too late for him. And she's on her own. Huntress leaves the car to swing across the rooftops. And she's she's tired of running. And it's time to be assertive. It's time to finish this with Brancati. However, when she confronts him on the bridge, Brancati isn't impressed. Quote, you ain't got a friend in this world, kid. Your old man's dead and he ain't gonna help you ever again. You're on your own. So, uh, forgive my poor impressionation. Uh, at that moment, Blue Beetle's bug appears above the bridge and Blue Beetle and Ice swing down to help. The gunsels open fire, but their guns are drawn upward by the magno beam on the underside of the bug. Huntress tracks Brancati. As they fight, she desperately tosses him into one of the huge support cables of the bridge. It tears, and the bridge creaks ominously. Beetle calls for everyone to freeze, that they've weakened the bridge enough, but it's too late for Brancati. With a cry, a rapid hole opens in the bridge, and he falls through into the waters below. Later, as Blue Beetle, Ice, and Martian Manhunter clear the damage and round up the remaining Brancati mobsters, Huntress stands staring out into the city from the bridge in kind of a shock. As her thoughts whirl through her mind, she finally fixes on one thought, quote, you're on your own. So later, Helena and James are moving into a slum apartment, and from now on, things will be as she decides them to be. She takes a moment to push her Huntress costume down a garbage chute. And that is Justice League International Special Number 2. Woof, wow. A lot to unpack, a lot to take in there. Laurel, what did you think of this comic? Well, as we said earlier, nice capstone to the Huntress series. Yeah. I'm not sure how it works as a Justice League international story. I'll have to let you tell me that part. Okay. The 89 series, as I've said, is very adult. She's dealing with the slums of New York City in the late 80s. You got the drugs, the gangs, the poverty, homelessness, rape, serial killer, nuclear bomb, mob war, land flips. There's all kinds of stuff going on. Psychological. I mean, it's just Joy Cavallari wrote the heck out of that series. Mm -hmm. I think it shows up in here. And I'm wondering if perhaps part of the reason the JLA is here is that they don't fit very well, because this really is the end of her relationship with so much of her supporting cast. Mm. Tony's gone. The cop that she worked with is gone. The other cops don't care if she lives or dies. The Brancati situation comes to an end, and she's kind of like in shock. Like, oh, you know, wow, all this is happening. It's all hitting her at once. She keeps getting more and more isolated. It's almost like it's getting claustrophobic by the end of this. Okay. So the idea of her sort of retreating back to what she's known thus far, she's been living in the slums for quite some time, and the break was to go outside of the city to take care of James. Yeah, they're sort of returning to where she was, where she felt safe. That's sort of the point of this, to reset the character back where she was and then, I don't know, rest her for a while, something along those lines. The Justice League parts, I think the comic relief from Blue Beetle does help because it does interrupt things quite well. I -hmm. think he's got some of the better lines as far as as that part of things are concerned. So that does fit in here. But otherwise, it really is her story. Uh, what do you think? Does it work for you? It works as a Hunter story. Absolutely for me. As someone who's, I've, I've never read the Hunter series. So I came into this 
completely cold back in 1990. I came into this cold today. I think it works as a story into itself. Uh, it, you do have some sort of unanswered questions, and I'll get to those in just a second. But, you know, it really what this story reads to me as it's a story about the importance of friends supporting each other. That does become a reoccurring theme through this thing. You know, supporting their fellow cops, the, the, the six that were all, you know, attempt, either killed or attempted to be killed. About her reconnecting with the Justice League. About Tony supporting her as a friend by working for Brancati to protect her. So, I mean, it seems to me that the friendships is kind of one of the core pieces of this. And then the other is uh, the New York City falling apart. I mean, that is a reoccurring theme throughout this, how it's just crumbling. Everything in New York's falling apart. It just keeps crumbling and keeps crumbling and keeps crumbling. That part of the story, I don't feel like necessarily got a resolution. Because, um, you know, I, I would expect at the end, it's like, no, I'm going to fight to protect the city and make it better. But there's none of that really at the end. So, as a standalone Hunter story for an outsider, I think it works pretty well. The Justice League, they really do feel just tacked on. I, I, they really do feel like it was there was a script, and they just added the Justice League. Even though there's a great moment where the bug appears over the bridge, and Blue Beetle gets to swing in, and that's a lot of fun, it, it doesn't really feel like it fits, and that's okay. But it does, again, give them a chance to address the, the issue of supporting your friends. Do you see that same theme in here, as far as the friendship issue, or am I just seeing something that you didn't see? No, you're right. The What I'm seeing it as is that she no longer has their support because for one reason or another, they're being eliminated. Mm, okay, so it's an ending of friendships. The friend that her was her comp there, O'Shea, his department has put more and more pressure on him to arrest her, actually. Mm-hmm. They pretty much know who she is. Um, that's another thing that kind of gets retconned away, I think, to the heads, the, the higher up in his department. They're like, yeah, we, we're pretty sure who this is. You need to bring her in. His partner, who never liked her, Obviously, the cops don't care if she lives or dies. So you've mm-hmm. got that whole thing closing. Tony, now, he was her bodyguard when her parents were still alive. And when they were killed, he took her off and trained her. Mm-hmm. So that relationship is quite deep. Having him be eliminated, it's like, oh, dear. Now we've lost another supporting character. Mm. Now, was he? did he fight side by side in the Huntress series with her? Is that what that was about? Yes, a lot. She was on her own some of the time with his support. And then occasionally they were actually in the field together. Um, There's times when he backed her up and she didn't even really know he was there. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah, the relationship's a little tricky there. And the background between the two of them, yes, it is complicated because we get into more adult situations. Mm. But the fact that he's no longer there, it's like, okay, this other link to the past to my family is gone. Now, she's still connected to James at the end. So I'm guessing he must have been, was he a big deal throughout the Hunter series or just right at the end? Or you didn't get a lot on him other than he's like (laughs) super smart. That's all we really got. What happens is you're going to love this one. Okay. uh, There was a drug lord that they're trying to get out of prison. So his Mm -hmm. gang basically gets nuclear material. They hijack a truck and they take him out of his science fair in order to get him to build the dirty bomb. (laughs) So my my science project of that movie. (laughs) What makes it so horrible, he was with a single mother and his brother and the writing in the book initially was from her point of view as a writer was, was so gorgeously written. They are murdered by this gang. Mm. When he obviously is saved by the Huntress, he ends up in the system, of course, foster care system, Mm -hmm. whatnot. He goes on a bombing campaign against the drug dealers, against the drug lords. Whoa, okay. When Batman guest stars, that is what's happening. And he guest stars in the Huntress book. And as part of that bombing campaign, a character Batman is following following is like uniting the gangs. Oh, we're going to have this united front against this bomber. So Batman's like, all right, we find the bomber. The gangs are going to go back to fighting each other. And she's like, oh, heck no, we are not putting 
this kid in prison. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how she ends up taking him in. And I'm assuming there was some sort of a deal made with Batman that, yeah, we're going to leave the city or something, you know, to to protect him, that that he's not going to just start running around wild, you know. But in in a state of grief and, again, being isolated, finding these gray areas is something that she does. And wanting to take him in, I thought, you know, was a beautiful thing. The only problem I run into is when you do get to Chuck Dixon, he's gone and we don't know what happened to him. Right. But, they, you know, it's interesting. It does sort of continue uh, one aspect of it. Here she's taking care of James. There's a little bit of maternalness going on or at least, you know, taking someone under her wing, almost a Robin, really, to some extent. But then when you when you get to the Chuck Dixon area, she's a school teacher. So there is this whole idea of Helena helping to keep watch over the next generation. And I like that aspect of that. So um, whether Chuck did that completely by coincidence or this is his way of taking care of the James angle, I'm not sure. But I, I like I like that Helena watching over the next generation of kids. I think that's great. And I do mean Helena, not Huntress, specifically. Yes, because she does do this in her Helena persona in the end. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. obviously James has to know who she is if she's going to take him in like this. Right, yeah. So, alright, questions uh, about a couple of different things here. So, there's a scene where they go to the Just League International headquarters and she gets a new uniform, right? Because uh, Max just happens to make everyone's copies of everyone's clothes. And she is furious. She is beyond livid that Maxwell Lord did this in... Alright, so there's a line here where she goes, Maxwell Lord making decisions for my life and career without consulting me, is he? And she is furious that he's made a duplicate of her costume. Now, that leads me to wonder, uh, now this is Joey Cavallari writing this, not Giffen and DiMatteo, so there may be a point here. Did she ever figure out that Maxwell Lord brainwashed her into joining the JLI? I don't know if that was ever revealed in the Huntress series or anything. No, no, it's not. We never do find out if she learns or not. I think part of what you're bumping into is she's got a lot of men trying to tell her what to do. Mm. And at a certain point, you draw the line like, look... I want to, you know, she's got to find some control in her life because she doesn't have a life at the moment. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you know, the mobsters were trying to use her. The, the guy that killed her family tried to use her. That was one of the first things that happens. You've got Tony trying to tell her what to do. It's like every time you turn around, there's some man trying to control what's going on. Hmm. So the fact that he would do something without her permission, taking something else out of her control, I would think she'd be livid about it. Gotcha. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. It really does. I, I wasn't sure if that was just a vague hint. Like, because there was one episode or one issue of Just League International where she did find out that Max had done this because Max confessed to her. She then literally tries to kill him. She's ch- she's choking him to death. And then he wipes her memory again to save his own soul. You know, you got to consider, I did not read Justice League International. I wasn't reading comics when this came out. Right. So my biggest exposure to Maxwell Lord is way later when, you know, the, the, you don't want to talk about he's a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> that never <laughs> happened. <laughs> so to me, it's like good judgment. She doesn't trust him. <laughs> yeah. Although, to be fair, the, the biggest argument for Maxwell Lord turning evil in Infinite Crisis, folks, where, you know, that the biggest argument of all of that comes right down to Huntress. That, that is the biggest justifying piece of how he mentally manipulated Huntress into joining the team. That is the piece you can stand up and go, well, I guess he is kind of a manipulative jerk. That's the one piece that stands up the most in, in that argument. So, ugh. 
Now, um, I, there, there's, a, there's a fun line I just got to mention here. Fire and Huntress are bantering back and forth. And Fire is saying to her, basically, like, you know, you took time off from being a superhero. I don't understand why you didn't go out to become a model in Hollywood or get your own talk show or write a book or whatever. And Huntress' response is, the nights I laid in bed as a youngster, dreaming about growing up to be a woman like you, she's talking about Fire, have always left me in a high state of apoplexy. <laughs> Which is great. And, and Fire is like, aw, gee. And she's like, hey, wait a minute. Now, as a kid, that forced me to go to a dictionary and look up that word. And as an adult, that forced me to go to dictionary.com to look up that word. <laughs> and, you know, lots of different definitions about, you know, basically being unconscious or incapacitated for different reasons. And I, it cracks me up. I think that's great. And what a great use of a word. And that's what I love what comic writers can do is they can just throw, you know, $3 words in there that kids will go look up because they know the kids will. And I love that about comics. Yeah. You know, this is the problem I have have with this issue is Uh when you're trying to do a humorous line it almost comes up kind of biting Uh, I mean, this is a real set down. It's like, you know, she has, you know, like no intention of being anything like this person, you know, at all, ever. And so to me, it's almost, I'm wondering, did you find it humorous? Is that what you're trying to say? Because I saw it as biting. Oh, well, it, it's a little bit of both it, it, because I feel like I think Fire started it, though. You know, Fire is so into celebrity and fame, she can't possibly understand why someone wouldn't go become a model or why someone wouldn't go become, you know, write a book or a talk show. It's like it's all about fame to Fire. That's all she can see, at least in this, you know, this story here. Uh, now, obviously, there's a lot more to the Fire character. But in this scene here, that's all she can see is fame. And Huntress is like, I want nothing to do with that, you know. And so she took a chance to strike back, you know, in a very intelligent way with a word that she knew would be, you know, uh, too, uh, too big of a word for fire to comprehend at first pass. So I, again, it's biting. I'm a jerk though. The name's irredeemable. It's right there in my name. So I, I you know, I kind of enjoy humor like that. So I, it worked for me, but my, that's just me because I'm a jerk. You know, when you talk about humor science, mine is when uh, Beatles says, say the word and I'll have the bug in Manhattan, you know, and she's like, and what? Strafe little Italy? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I Actually, I, I see. It's funny. See, I didn't think of that scene as funny. I thought of that more as Huntress being the voice of reason. Because, you know, <laughs> she really, like, we think of the Justice League, oh, let's go get him. But she's making a point. She's like, well, how does that work? You know, you have a flying weapon. What are you going to do, kill people? And so she is the voice of reason saying, look, super heroics aren't going to work in this. And I, I, it's funny. I didn't even think of that as humorous. I just thought of it as her being, you know, uh, the logic. Well, to me, that's the other line that can go either way. Yeah, no, that's fair. It's, uh, both of them work that way. For some reason reason that one hit me as funny and the other one hit me as biting where yeah it, it is something because the next thing she says is you know it requires something more subtle so the follow-up mm-hmm. line is where i think she got more serious but you know with fire and she has just it's like fire has no idea of the problems that huntress has been dealing with it's right. so far exactly. out of her realm that it's like you know <laughs> just it's interesting though. I mean, if you if you think about it, like put it in other terms, like the Justice League International live in almost like a threes company sitcom kind of world, and Huntress lives in like a Stephen Bochco. I'm doing. I'm using '70s and '80s reference here. She lives in like a Stephen Bochco, Miami Vice, uh, you know, crime story kind of world. You know, very different worlds that don't bump into each other properly. Uh, and so I think this is a good demonstration of that. I mean, we're seeing these these different worlds don't mix very well. I have a question for you. What did you think when they wouldn't let her in the building? Um, it was a joke that went on too long. Uh, it was like, at first I was like, I don't, you know, why would Beetle be struggling, struggling with this? She put in the code. It's obviously supposed to be funny. That's why it's there. Uh, it didn't really do a lot for me in that regard, though. I like that she got to threaten Beetle. <laughs> <laughs> How did it work for you? 
like I said, it highlights that this is not where she belongs. Yep. And I agree yeah. with you. If it had just been like a one panel, I think mm-hmm. it would have worked a lot better. Where you know, but having to have Martian Manhunter come in and say all this stuff, and it's like, no, no, this isn't working. Now, there's a nice bit artistically, though. So if we're looking, this is page seven, where she's on all the different monitors, and it's all these different camera shots from her. Like, you look like there's probably eight or different cameras on her. And then she gets so angry, and she screams at him, she actually fills all of the camera screens with one image. (laughs) So artistically, I like the way that paid off. But that leads me into another part of the discussion I have to bring up, which is Joe Staten's art. Uh, I'm going to ask your opinion in a second, but I'll go first. I love, 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 love Joe Staten's early work. His 1970s stuff is absolutely astonishing. He drew drew one of my favorite comics, Showcase 100, which is just amazing. Unfortunately, by the late 1980s and early 1990s, his art had become, at least for me, this is unfortunate for me, uh, is very, very stylized. And it's not really my thing at this point. Uh, How do you feel? I've got some specific examples, but how do you feel about this art? We found it to be um, hit or miss within issues, which is what you're finding here. She Mm -hmm. looks very gaunt and doesn't really, you know, it's hard sometimes to see what he's doing with her. But on the other hand, the panel layouts are interesting. The shots are Mm -hmm. interesting. When you get O'Shea talking with his wife, they look great. Mm -hmm. You know, so it sort of was like, I wasn't sure why he made certain decisions. I think the um, lighting, the coloring definitely was good. It plays into the crime noir kind of situation that she's in. So the art, you know, it it was, like I said, hit or miss. I'm not always pleased with how he does her, but there's times when you get a close-up on her eyes or something like that, and it's just gorgeous. It really, really works. Trying to get the feel of the city really, really works. So, yeah, it, it sort of depends on what he's showing you, how his art works. That, that's really good. I'm glad you say it that way. Like page uh, nine and 10 are great examples of that. Like page nine, it's uh, Helena just talking to the Justice League. And this is one thing that I'm not a fan of with Joe Staten in this era is he draws foreheads for miles. Like people have Hector Hammond, <laughs> you know, kind of or, or the leader or whoever character you like, you know, insanely huge foreheads that are just like crazy. So you see that on page nine. Then you go to page 10 when she's in the Hunter's uniform, that bottom right, uh, bottom left hand panel, she's, her, her face is all in shadows. All you can see are her glowing eyes amongst that crazy, you know, 90s hair. It looks great. You know, she looks sexy too. I mean, he can draw women very beautifully. It's just, like you said, it's very hit or miss. Sometimes it looks amazing. Sometimes it's like, uh, that's not my favorite. So I, I really struggle with his art in this time. Except for sometimes her figure work, it's gorgeous. It, it works mm-hmm. it, for what it is. We had some some moments where, like I said, you step back and you're like, what? And then mm-hmm. there's other moments where it's just so spot on. It just so sets the mood, the tone. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I'm sorry I undersold, undersold that. You're right. He really does do a great job with setting the tone. He does an amazing job with blacks. He really knows how to use blacks to be shadows and dark. You know, there's a great shot on page 15 where she's just in silhouette over uh, uh, over the city and the, and the cape looks great. There's a lot of that. Really, really wonderful stuff. Um, there's a lot. The tones. Now I see why there's a separate person listed as tones because there's all kinds of interesting shading that's going on in the issue as well. Uh, one art problem I had is when she's fighting the hunter, right? She catches him in the there. She's got him on the rooftop. She just pulls off the mask, right? And we've waited, I'm sorry, three pages for her to finally pull the mask off. And we see it, 
And until they really make it clearly obvious, I still wasn't sure who this guy was. I uh, like it wasn't in the script. She didn't go, "Hey, Tony, how dare you?" You know, it, it didn't happen for like two or th- two pages till we finally figured, at least for me, that I knew that was Tony. Like, did you know immediately when you saw just a little bit of the face that that was Tony, or did it take a take you a while as well to figure that out? Yeah, well, we're used to seeing him, so it was obvious okay. immediately. He is in that flashback sequence where he takes her equipment. Mm-hmm. But you don't get a good. I'm looking at it right now, and I see where you don't get a good front of his face from that. Yeah. So it's no wonder you had a little trouble with that. But we've seen him, you know, like I said, the course of the whole series. So we're yeah, kind of. That's and true. It's funny because he started off as calling himself Sal, mm-hmm. you know, like Salvatore. So to go from that to Anthony Tony, <laughs> mm. it took us a little while to. In my mind, sometimes I refer to him by the other name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because he changed his name partway through his life, and it was. Just like wait what so yeah knowing that yes this is the, that character is it's pretty obvious to us right away but i'm sorry that you guys didn't catch it that's okay i mean that's just again it's it, he, she pulls the mask off and she's talking to him but again uh, it wasn't until like it, 24 is where you finally see him without the mask off it's not till they start having more discussion in 25 where it's like oh i just feel like the script could have used a tony how could you do this i mean because then i would have been like oh it's that guy from earlier in the issue you know i would have known but oh well well he does have the little H on his belt buckle. For Hunter? (laughs) (laughs) And all right, so I feel pretty dumb. It wasn't until I read this comic the second time that I even caught Hunter as a short version of Huntress. Like, oh, how did I? Yeah, I, I was embarrassed to say I didn't pick up on that, but that's just me. So, uh, had had the hunter been in the previous issues as well? No, uh, no, this was his creation. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, I had one other comment on the art, which I thought was just kind of cute. Was in the very beginning, she's sitting there, uh, sun. You know, I don't know if she's sunbathing, but she's laying on a hammock, reading a book, and she's just chilling out. And she's reading. Uh, I had to zoom in on it. The Moosewood Cookbook is what she's reading, which turns out is actually a famous cookbook. Uh, it's a famous vegetarian cookbook from 1974. Uh, and yet, it's in the writing though. She's quoting a chicken recipe. So uh, I was like, oh. Oh, missed opportunity there. Oh, well. Uh, I would never have caught that. It's just small little quirks I like to look up, you know, that kind of thing. All right. Well, Laurel, any more comments, any thoughts on the issues before we have to make the big decision? Yeah, I think one of the things that we're not quite covered quite yet is the um, Broncati situation. Because mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. is someone who's been in her book for quite some time. Okay. And she entrapped him. She she tricked him into revealing things and got him arrested. So the fact that he's out and after her, the fact that her father's ledger is also in her series, and that causes a heck of a lot of problems. So to have that tied into him makes mm. him this really big threat. So the fact that that's all over for her at the end of this, and she's sort of like staring off into space, like, now what do I do? Everybody's gone. She's very Mm -hmm. isolated. What he said is true. What everybody else is saying is true. You're on your own. And that big saga of her life is is completed. Now what? So do you feel like the issue ends on a a downbeat note uh, with her being alone? Or do you feel like it's more liberating? And it's like she's finally on her own and can do what she wants. Which way do you feel like it ends? Well, to be honest, I'm not quite sure. I think that her moving back into the slums is an emotional decision. The mm-hmm. I'm going to get away because I've co- things have come to a conclusion. I've stopped people from using the diary. Everybody's gone, sort of retreating. On the other hand, what she's saying out loud is, we're going to do things my way. We're going to mm-hmm. do what I want to do. So I guess it cuts both ways. Depends on how you want to look at it. I see it as we're bringing this series to a close. Here's where she's going to rest for a time. Here's where she's going to regroup. But mm-hmm. she's got to come to that conclusion after realizing this huge chapter of her life is over. So, you know, that that ending, 
means, all right, we can rest now. So being in a state of shock for a time, that that's part of the character. That's part of some things that happen when she just has got more emotions going on than you can deal with at one time. Sometimes you have to stop and pause. And that's where I see this going. I found it very poignant. I think that's very fair because uh, you're right. The, her last line is anything I say from now on. And so the point is, it's she's in charge of her destiny. Uh, The the only part I had trouble with is where she burns the Huntress costume at that moment. So it's sort of like, uh, I struggle with that. Like, okay, anything she's from now on, but she's doing it without the Huntress. What's that mean? But I think you're right. It it is sort of leading towards the resting. It's saying it's going to be the way I want it. And maybe that's just living my life for a little while and taking care of James. And apparently going and getting a haircut, too, by the way, Um, because all her hair is chopped off. (laughs) Don't worry, she'll grow it out into a mullet. It'll be fine. Right, right. But but I guess she had time between the bridge collapsing and and this to go get a haircut. I think part of it, too, is she's um, been working on being in hiding. Yeah, changing her identity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I I don't know that I got the same emotional beat that you did. I felt a little bit more loss at the end. Uh, I felt like it was a... It definitely feels like a closing chapter, but I didn't feel like it ended on a high note. But again, that's someone who didn't understand the importance of Brancati. You know, I, I just saw him as a mobster. I knew he was in the... You know, that's all I really knew. So I didn't feel the, the weight of coming off of her and the freedom of, of that, you know, sort of trap she was in before coming off. So... Either way, it's, it definitely feels like the closing chapter of something, you know, For and there's no doubt about that. And as you said, it's going to be a few years. And then they're going to go, you know, sort of, again, it's, it's sort of like a, a relaunch to some extent. Because I remember the promotions at the time when they brought her back into Detective Comics. I mean, that was a big, big deal in, in the comic book world at the time. They really promoted that heavily, uh, as it, almost as if it was her first appearance, which it clearly wasn't. But they promoted it almost as if it was. Yeah, she does say in that issue that she's been out a while is what she says. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they do reference that she's been out of the game a while. And some of that is, you know, she's bought an apartment building that she's now using as a home base. She's got the gym set up in there. She's bought a car. She's starting to use the money to support her campaign as Huntress, which she wasn't doing here. Mm. So it's sort of that new turning over. And one of the first things she does, there's a a gunfire scene at the beginning where there's a robbery going on. And her instinct to duck and hide, she's still got that instinct. And it's not until she can take back up being Huntress that she can start fighting again. Mm. And then all of a sudden she's investigating the crime and she's, you know, her students come through while she's in the library. It's really fun to read these old comics because she doesn't go on the internet and look up what this tattoo might be. She's she's at the library and then she has to go back to the library because they're from this obscure country and she's reading the history of this country and it, it just was so much fun. Being a superhero, a uh, detective superhero back in the old days must have been much, much, much harder. Well, yeah, and Batman's <laughs> got this huge computer set up. And what is she? She's using the high school library, you know? I like that, though. I like the shows that she's, you know, again, not part of the Bat family. She's not the cutting edge. She's doing it her way. So it works. All right. Well, folks, uh, that is Just League International Special Number 2 featuring the Huntress or Huntress Number 20, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's it's, it's a nice snapshot of what's going on in the Huntress's life at this point. And for me, this was my, you know, first probably exposure to post-crisis Huntress other than what she'd been in the Just League comics. So, okay, Laurel, this is the hard part. This is where we have to nominate our favorite moment in a segment called One Punch Award. 
whether it be fantastic or shocking or dramatic, funny, awe-inspiring, whatever, both myself and Laurel will pick one moment it'll be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. All right, Laurel, you're the guest. You're the better half of this podcast episode without a doubt. So you get to go first. What is your pick for the One Punch Award? Well, you can probably tell already that thousand-yard stare that she has at the end of the saga with Brancati on the bridge trying to cope with all these thoughts tumbling through her head. You know, she's going to leave the city. She's not got a friend in the world. And what's the point of membership in the jail? And she's just staring off and the you're on your own refrain comes up. And we were talking about art earlier. And I think that particular panel, Staten did wonderfully. I mean, it's so expressive of just shock. I love yeah. it. I love that so much. This is what stuck to me when I got to this, this issue in particular. This is what struck me and, and stayed with me. I totally get that. It's a great moment. I can already tell. I'm gonna give a, go to your your pick, but my mine interesting left is sort of tied to it. But we're still gonna go with yours. I can tell you that already. Is when Brancati first tells her that he's he's yelling at her and he's saying they're on the bridge. You know, she's surrounded by all these guns and everything. And he says, you know, you ain't got a friend in this world, kid. Your old man's dead. He ain't gonna help you ever again. You're on your own. And that is how that page ends. You turn the page and then you get suddenly the the Blue Beetle's bug hovering over the bridge. You know, it's larger than life. It's almost as big as the bridge. And it says, well, now I wouldn't say that. And for me, that was very much a kapow moment. Like, I didn't see that coming. It's a great follow-up to, to hearing, oh, no, you're on your own. No, wait, she's not. She's got friends. And I just, and you know, I'm a JLI guy. So I love that moment when Blue Beetle shows up because it's showing, again, she's got friends that are going to support her. So I love that. It's just a fun moment, though. Yours really ties the whole issue together. You know, it's, it's Brancati's line of that. It's the whole journey she's on. It's her resolution. So without a doubt, yours has to win because that is really the whole crux of the whole story. See, and so. you claimed I was the kind one. That was very kind of you, Shag. Uh, it's more like I recognize my own failures. So... Uh, <laughs> All right, so congratulations to the far-off stare, the stare in the middle distance, if you will. Uh, You are the winner of the One Punch Award. Uh, Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as our love for that moment. All right, Laurel, that was fantastic. Now, I need to ask a favor. Uh, Would you mind hanging out here at the embassy for just a little bit? I'm worried about the Huntress throwing everyone else's costumes down the the incinerator chute. Would you mind staying here for a little bit? No problem. I can be the goalie. (laughs) Now, don't worry, Laurel. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And while Laurel's taking care of that for us, folks, we're going to go to a podcast promo break. And when we come back, we're going to read your listener feedback. To confront the ultimate killers, I must construct the ultimate alias. Hey, who is that lady? I think she could fly. To combat the murderers who destroy my family, crush my own life on their way to consuming everything, I must become a greater, more fearsome destroyer. Hey, man, somebody killed this lady. To track down the animals who prey on the innocent, I must stalk them first. I am no longer their quarry. I am the Huntress. You can listen to the Huntress Podcast online at thehuntresspodcast.com, at Apple Podcasts. Go to Twitter at Huntress Podcast. And again, this shares a feed with the Bad Girl Cassandra Kane Podcast. Cheers. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. 
the Once Upon a Geek podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Let's get to it. There is a lot of feedback from last episode. So first thing I do want to say, though, is earlier in this episode, I misspoke about my favorite Huntress costume. I mentioned that my favorite costume is her full body costume covering everything but her head, but I misattributed the era. I thought that costume debuted when Huntress returned to Detective Comics in 1992 in that, like, Robin 3 miniseries, but I was wrong. Uh, The costume I liked didn't actually debut until 1996 during the Legacy Batman storyline. And now, I I cannot claim credit for figuring that out, folks. That is all thanks to Tim Price and Laurel and AJ, all from the Right On Network, for helping me figure that information out. We had a fun conversation over on Twitter that started with the, the Huntress action figure from Total Justice, but thank you so much to everyone over the Right On Network for your assistance. Uh, then another fun piece of news. Uh, John Murray, um, and sorry if I said your name wrong, sent me some information. Donald Faison from Scrubs uh, has been confirmed as Booster Gold on Legends of Tomorrow. And the part that makes it even more interesting is that his partner from Scrubs, Zach Braff, has publicly declared that he'd be thrilled to play Ted Cord as Blue Beetle, giving us the blue and the gold on Legends of Tomorrow. That would be awesome, and that is exactly the best place for that to appear. All right, folks, remember, get on the social media. We want you to be part of this conversation. Use our hashtag JLI Podcast or go out to our website, firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI and leave your comments there. As I always say, it's about building a community of JLI fans around the show. And remember, if you're posting comments and you're from outside the United States, just let me know. We'll be sure to assign you the appropriate embassy. All right, now remember, we are just pulling comments from our website, email, and social media. Just bits and pieces. I can't cover all the feedback you guys left. It's an amazing amount of feedback from those two issues. So uh, we're just going to be cherry-picking comments all about Justice League America, number 46, that I covered with Andy Capellish, and Justice League Europe, number 22, that I covered with Dr. Jennifer Swartz-Levine. All right, first off is Angson, who addressed some of the comments we made about the Justice League America cover. Uh, we had talked about the uh, Polaris nuclear sub-ad that we just thought was so much fun. Angson actually uh, sent us some... Um, screenshots of a book they own called Mail Order Mysteries Real Stuff from Old Comic Book Ads written by Kirk Damaris. And this is great. It shows you the Polaris nuclear sub-ad and then it shows you what it looks like in real life. It says it was a cardboard structure loosely resembling a submarine that would be irreparably damaged by any contact with water, including dewy grass. It includes a small mirror periscope and a built-in rubber band torpedo slingshot. However, the lack of mobility limits potential targets to people or animals foolish enough to pass directly in front of the sub. Tell you what I'll do. I'll share those screenshots out on social media so you can see those out there. Thank you so much, Angson, for sending that in. Also heard from from Denim Jedi, a new listener, says, found your podcast a few days ago and glad to see it's still going. I recently got the JLI Omnibus Volume 1 and I'm enjoying reading along with the episode. As of now, I've just finished Episode 3, but up to Issue 7 on the comics. Looking forward to catching up eventually. All right, Denim Jedi, well, I look forward to you hearing me read your name on the show in about five years when you catch up. 
Then heard from Damien Drought, Whiter from our England Embassy in the Should I Love This Comic podcast. Damien says, let's start with the first part of the General Glory story. I love this one, and it's mainly down to Linda Medley's phenomenal artwork. She really does the most fantastic facial expressions. She's right up there with Kevin McGuire when it comes to characterization. She can do a fantastic set piece like the bazooka scene at the old people's home, but it's also great at giving life to the background characters. This is most pronounced in the comic book convention scenes, and there's real truth to the geeks in the background. They're so real. There's so many great Easter eggs throughout. I loved seeing the grinning J.M. DiMatteis looking through the long boxes on page 12. And I'm pretty sure that same panel features Art Adams, before his hair left, sitting behind the table with his portfolio open. At the auction, I think the auctioneer could be intended to be Paul Levitz, and the front row features Guy Gardner, who sat next to Bob LePan, who's blonde with the glasses. And Linda herself is definitely the woman in the Metalman t-shirt. The bearded guy next to Guy Gardner could be the miscolored Adam Hughes. Uh, the hair is a little more sandy than brown. And I'm pretty sure we also see Kevin McGuire on page 17. Oh my gosh! Damien, that is amazing with the knowledge bomb dropped on us there. Thank you so much. Then Damien goes on to say, you know, it was a real emotional page for me when Guy Gardner is thinking about comic collecting and the line, quote, they made me happy when everything else was just making me miserable, end quote, really resonates with me. J.M. Dimitri has had such a talent for getting to the heart of things. It's so good. Then they say, the reason I love the General Glory story so much is the true joy behind the parody. It's clear that both Giffen and Dimitri truly love the Golden Age characters, creators, and the fans. In particular, their love for the Simon Kirby Cap and the original C.C. Beck of Captain Marvel. There's no sneering at the source material, which for me is too often a big part of parodies. Then onto the Just League Europe, uh, he says, I don't think I could ever express how much I dislike the depiction of England in these issues. The accents are truly offensive, uh, and the dialogue is terrible. Uh, thank you so much, Damien. As someone from England, uh, we appreciate your feedback. All right, then we heard from Siskoid from the Canadian Embassy, does shows on the Firewater Podcast Network, such as Zero Hour Strikes, Who's Editing, and more. Siskoid says, yes, I can't wait for someone, anyone, to figure out what the humor magazine, comic book, or movie poster the Just League American cover is referencing. Like Shag, I'm convinced I've seen the image before. Yes, Siskoid, we got lots of feedback on Facebook and Twitter and things like that, uh, of potential parallels for that cover, but, you know, unfortunately, we're still not at a one-for-one. There's no, aha, the magic bullet of saying, that's the one, so I, I don't don't know that we're still there yet. All right, then we're from Symbol Pending, also from our UK embassy. They also have their Symbol Pending Power Girl blog. They write, those British accents make my poor eyes bleed. Though to be fair, there is a portion of the population that talk like that. Uh, and then regarding Power Girl, specifically, Symbol Pending says, as I understand it, her boobs stayed more or less the same size, but the boob window got bigger till someone notices around All-Star Comics number 64 when it's just suddenly gone. Uh, they also begin to soften Kara around her appearances in Showcase number 97 through 99. And by the time Infinity Inc. comes around, she's playing the big anti type of role. Then they go on to say, though, how could I not love an episode with Stinky? I recently discovered that according to DC Retroactive, which I'm sure is on the list, uh, it's revealed that the cat's name is Theodore, much to the amusement of the rest of the JLA when she calls the cat Ted. <laughs> yes, uh, the DC Retroactive issue is, in fact, on the list of things to cover towards the end of this run. Finally, Symbol Pending says, and if you want a decent depiction of a competent Power Girl, the last run of World's Finest from 2012 at least starts with a suitably capable Kara. Ah, all right. Thank you so much, Symbol Pending. Then we heard from Chuck Coletta, who's the Bowling Green State University pop culture social media guru. 
Chuck says, Jenny was a keynote speaker at our BGSU Batman conference, and she certainly knows her stuff. It was great to listen to your enlightening conversation on Power Girl. Bravo. Yeah, I mean, she was amazing, wasn't she, uh, Chuck? She was absolutely great. And hey, that Batman conference, uh, also Stella from our network was um, presented at that conference. Uh, Donovan Morgan Grant. I want to say Joshua Pertoni. Lots of our friends actually were part of that conference. How cool. Can't wait for the next one. They were from Tim Levine, who is a great guy and husband to Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine. Tim says, one of the things that people forget is that Marshall Rogers had a very recently worked on Batman when he did these issues of Just Like Europe. Rogers, along with an uncredited Max Allen Collins, launched the Batman newspaper strip in late 1989 and did the first arc before being replaced by Bill Mester Loeb's and Carmen Infantino in early 1990. Whoa! That is fascinating. I had no idea, Tim. Thanks for sharing. They were from Michael Cramer. Kramer, regarding Just League America, says, I always liked the character of General Glory, but part of me was always resigned to the fact that he was wildly obvious riff on Captain America, and as such, had a limited shelf life due to legal constraints. That being said, as a longtime player of DC Universe Online, I have a number of characters who keep the good General's likeness in their bases as an homage to either his tenure in Justice League, his role in the Hero of the War years, or even as simply the poster boy for the comic book graphic novel section of a library. Uh, that's awesome, Michael. Thank you so much for sharing that, and that's so cool you're keeping the memory of general glory alive then michael kramer says um shag not really loving what tom king has done in the latest issue of human target yeah folks uh, i'm not going to get into it here but uh human target has taken a bit of a turn and some of the just league international fans are not happy so that's uh that's between you and your comic dealer to figure out folks they are from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Liz says, I'm not sure I would want to see Justice League Europe in a different country like Brazil or the likes. Look at how much trouble they're having portraying the British people. And how bad are they at writing French people? Do you really want to see them try and do a Brazilian accent or a Spanish accent? Things could get very bad very quickly. That's a good point, Liz. It's a very good point. Then Liz has quite a bit to say about Power Girl. She says, when Power Girl returned to the JSA, a lot of rebuilding for character had already happened. And Liz says she liked the Jimmy Palmiotti, Gray, Amanda Connor run on the character as well. And this here is interesting. I really like what Liz says here. Uh, talking about the potential that was wasted with Power Girl, uh, they, they put together a, a simple review, as they call it. So, who is Karen Starr? Let's compare to others. Crimson Fox has sisters, and they own a business, and they're a hero of their city. Huntress is either the daughter of Batman or the daughter of a mob boss who saw one or both of her parents brutally murdered, who put herself into becoming the perfection as a fighter, learned great detective skills, and has a job either as an attorney or as a teacher. Fire can use her sexuality to get what she wants. She's smarter than she appears. Her best friend is Ice. She gets a good government job, first with the Global Guardians and later with Checkmate. You know, Catherine Colbert runs the European Organization of the Justice League. She's in love with Captain Adam. She has a decent fashion sense. She can be best friends with Sue Dibney and works well with other members of the team. I could go on, but let's just say Karen Starr is annoyed at the way men look at her and she owns a cat. I think you've got my point here as one of these people is not like the others. And then uh, Liz goes on to say, in one miniseries of Heroes for Hire, Palmiotti and Gray gave Misty Wing and Colleen Knight more personality than Power Girl has gotten an entire time here in Justice League Europe. Yeah, I mean, really great pointing out all these other strong female characters associated with the Justice League, and Power Girl just doesn't have that development. Thanks so much, Liz. Then we heard from Chris Franklin from the Firewater Podcast Network. He does shows such as the JLU cast, and Chris puts himself out there professionally as a General Glory hater. So let's see what Chris has to say. Uh, Chris says, I'm one of those people who have always thought General Glory was a bridge too far. Still do. Is it funny? Yes. Is it a fun love letter to the golden age of comics? Yes. Does it belong in a Justice League comic, taking up five issues and leaving the character a member of the team? In my opinion, no. This is when JLA becomes a full-on humor mag, in my opinion, and maybe Linda Medley's art is part of it. It looks great, but it's kind of got a Bigfoot feel, you know? 
If Adam Hughes or Kevin McGuire had drawn this, at least to be partially grounded in reality, I probably would have accepted it. But the combination of the art and the concept are just a bit too much out there, even for this version of the League. Again, in my opinion. And if this was just to be put out as a General Glory miniseries, or maybe an extra-sized one-shot guest-starring Guy in the JLI, I probably would have accepted it. I probably would have even liked it. As it stands now, it reminds me a bit of Hero Hotline. It's all about the packaging and the book it's taking place in for me. Chris, as much as I pick on you and call you out for your general glory feelings, yeah, you, you make very good points. You truly do. Uh, then Chris says about Power Girl, the discussion was fascinating. I'd argue that no one's known what to do with Kara since the JSA run in All-Star Comics Adventures folded, and at least until Jeff Johns and Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiani's series took control of the character. Yeah, I think you're right, Chris. All right, then we're from Jason R. Lady, author of the young adult humorous fantasy novels Monster Problems and Super Problems. Jason says, Count me in as someone who actually liked General Glory. His can do attitude is endless pontificating and speechifying, his sharing of anecdotes, calling Jean Skipper. Uh, all of it was amusing, and the whole premise was very creative. I think what was a little too far was this being a five month story, culminating in a double sized issue. I'm not sure this story, while fun, warranted that much real estate. And as far as General Glory joining the team, a jokey character like the General should have been in Occasional guest star only, especially when you consider how the letters pages were filled with requests for established characters to be added to the JLA. I can totally see your point, Jason. I really can. And as far as Just League Europe, Jason says, I wonder if Mr. Bigger and his data gathering organization were used anywhere else. The comparison to Oracle and Calculator is spot on. I, you know, I'd be fascinated if anyone knows if Mr. Bigger ever had a life outside of Just League Europe. That would be interesting to know. Then we hear from Adam Ackerman from our Denmark embassy. You know, over in Just League Europe, I, last month I asked folks if those two kidnappers might be based on anyone. And uh, Adam says, if you're looking for a British TV show that's based on, this one definitely seals like it's grabbing for only fools and horses. Then, Martin Gray from our Scottish Embassy in the Two Dangers for a Girl blog chimes in on that. He says, for only fools and horses, uh, the two chaps here are far too middle class, and Rodney and Del Boy weren't outright crooks, just dodgy. Uh, thank you, Martin, for that feedback. Those were a bunch of words that were strung together in a sentence that meant absolutely nothing to me. But hey, I appreciate you anyway, pal. Uh, Martin goes on to say, cheers for another fine episode featuring three very personable and informed folks. Aw, you're always so nice. Uh, Martin says, regarding the JLA issue, count me in as a Another General Glory fan. I love his throwback design with the stocky physique and cheesy grin. And his personality is pure charm. I was fine with him joining the team. He had an entirely different flavor of hero and looked amazing in the group shots. Alright, someone who likes General Glory being a permanent member of the team. Then Martin goes on to say, I really like the art by Linda Medley. It had been good for her to stick around for a while. She did an especially great job making Joe look like a proper old gent. Just look at his wrinkles and sunken mouth. Then Martin says that atmospheric page with Metamorpho and Foxy in the fog is indeed wonderful. But again, as Damien agrees, we don't have pea super fogs in London. Then he points out, you know, the, the comic books based in the United States aren't full of ancient cliches. Why does the UK, France, and Russia have to suffer so? That's fair, Martin. It's probably because here in the United States, we're just stupid. That's probably what it is. And uh, I'm not being sarcastic. Then Martin pointed out that uh, Marsha Manhunter has a great serial going in Action Comics right now. I wanted to let us know that. I had no idea, Martin. That's great to hear. And finally, I don't know if you guys remember last month in the feedback, uh, Martin um, kind of broke my heart criticizing Woodstock from Peanuts. And uh, But Martin is back at my good graces. He sent me a photo of his cat, Millie, snuggling on the ground with Millie's own uh, Woodstock stuffed animal. So there we go, Martin. We can be friends again. 
Then Mike Dinas from Pacific Canadian Embassy wrote in, says, well done, everyone. Another great show with great guests again. It was great to hear Jennifer's amazing perspective on Power Girl. Then regarding Just Like America, says, I was on the fence when I first saw Linda Medley's artwork back in the day. But looking at it now, I really like it. I love her great expression work, which harkens back to McGuire and Hughes. And put me in the group that likes General Glory. Captain America never spoke to me, maybe because I'm Canadian. So I enjoyed how General Glory gently poked fun at Cap and his rah-rah Americanism. Then regarding Just Like Europe, Mike says, I really enjoyed your conversation about Kara. Both of you made me understand how Kara was being written negatively. I always feel like I learned something and become a better person every time Jennifer is on the show. Thanks, Doc. Yeah, I mean, she's absolutely wonderful, no doubt about it. And there's so many comments raving about her, her appearance on the show, folks. Then we heard from Everton Vieira do Carmo from our Brazil embassy. They say, I'm divided by the art of Just League America because Joe Jones and Schmidt look really, really good. Also, Elron and Max. Uh, but the white eyes on Marsha Manhunter don't work for me. And when General Glory arises, uh, the art does not please me either. Despite everything, though, I love General Glory, and he's the perfect character to appear on Legends of Tomorrow with the same origin story. You know, that's a great idea. Another Legends of Tomorrow idea. That would be awesome. They were from Ward Hill Terry, who says, Regarding General Glory, I'm rather disappointed that no one has pointed out the connection to Marvel Man or Miracle Man. When the character was revived in the 1980s, the starting premise was an aging ex-hero who had forgotten his magic word. Oh, that's awesome, Terry. I didn't even think about that comparison. I love the Miracle Man series. So, yeah, that's a really, really good comparison. Then, uh, regarding Power Girl, Terry says, Thanks for the great discussion. I think that the underlying problem of Power Girl in the series is her power is undefined. What can Power Girl do? When was the last time she did anything? Over the course of the series, DC has decryptoned her and depowered her. Is she still strong? How strong? Can she fly? Can she leave over buildings? Does she have x-ray vision? What the hell is her power? Uh, you know, Terry, you make a great point. They, they made a big deal about depowering her, and they kind of hinted at what her power was, which was conceptually, she was supposed to be at the same power level as the Golden Age Superman. You know, able to leap a tall building, took a bursting shell to, to break her skin, that kind of thing. But they never really defined it. They, they really never went out of their way to clarify that. So you make a great point. And then Terry says she has been in Europe since the start of the book and has no other identity and has done very little to show her power. What a waste of potential. Yeah, uh, she really is one of the characters who has been underserved in the book, sadly. Then we heard from Gus Casals from the Argentina Embassy. He does shows such as Alfred Pennyworth Presents and his Legion 60 Years Later podcast. Gus says, kudos to Dr. Jen, who never fails to elevate the podcast. Loved her insights, and I was wondering if there's any parallel between the, quote, angry female slash feminist, end quote, and the, quote, angry black young man or woman, end quote, tropes. Both seem to point that any minority expressing their needs is necessarily angry and unacceptable. That is a really interesting comparison, Gus. I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, Dr. Jennifer Swartz-Levine even said that she thought the parallels that might be right on. Gus goes on to say, and finally, uh, the General Glory thing, yeah, for me, it was the last straw. I mean, cute idea, but a five-issue saga? And then keeping him on the team? Nope. Unfortunately for me, this is where the title jumps the shark. Breakdowns had some moments, but the art was usually uh, and had no need to run 13 issues. I still bought and read it, but nope. Fortunately, we still have the Starro saga in Just Like Europe with some of the best Bart Sears art on this title. Yeah, Gus, uh, I, first of all, I'm really looking forward to the Starro saga in Just Like Europe. That's going to be fantastic to get to. And as far as just like America goes, you know, there are still some gems ahead. I really do think there are. And I think we're all kind of going with the memory uh, of not enjoying it. And I think we're going to find that some of those issues are really, really, really good. For example, the first part of General Glory, I was really not expecting to enjoy it. And I thought it was a heck of an issue. So I, I still think there's good days ahead. You know what? With the guests, it's always going to be a fun podcast anyway. 
All right, then we're from Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast, and the Batgirl Huntress podcast. Tim says, Just like America number 46, when I first read this story, I was all in with General Glory to the point of being a Glory apologist. I do wonder if that point of view will hold up, but for this issue, I find myself thinking, quote, it would be hilarious to have a superhero talk like old Joan Jones all the time, end quote. His dialogue was some of the best in the story. I know it's over, but gosh, could you have pictured Joe giving the old codger talk to Orion? <laughs> that would have been great. I love the Joe Jones character. He's been so much fun so far. Then Tim says, I've stated before how I never bought the whole serious story mission statement of Just Like Europe any more than JLA was just a funny book. They both had stories across the spectrum as the mood struck, and I went along for the ride. Yeah, that's a very fair point, Tim. Thank you. Then Brian Linton chimes in and says, Total stab in the dark, but could our two kidnappers, Robin and Johnny, have been a nod to Robin Hood and Little John, two of England's most famous thieves? Ah, Good suggestion, Brian. Uh, DC Day was thinking the same thing. Then we'll hear from John Coos from the quintessential Gen X 80s with John and Scott podcast. Uh, John says, when he's rereading this book, I couldn't help but think that Cy Borgman from Harlequin is an homage to Schmidt, General Glory's arch enemy. You know, John, the minute you said that, I was like, oh, yes, I totally see the connection between those characters. Absolutely. Then John has quite a bit to say about Power Girl here uh, and the character spotlight. So here, let's get into this. John says, finally, it was nice to hear the perspective of Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine. Yet, I think she was a little too hard on Power Girl, or rather the JLI writers. Uh, As mentioned, Power Girl pre-crisis was a bit of a hothead. Sometimes her attitude is cringeworthy by today's standards. Yet, I give credit to Jerry Conway and Paul Levitz for doing their level best to make a strong woman character in the 1970s, not often seen in the previous 40 years of comics. That being said, Giffen and company inherited that sassy person, combined that history with how Power Girl was affected in Crisis on Infinite Earths, and I'm not sure I can blame the Just League International writers in any way. In fact, her brash attitude and anger in the JLI pales in comparison to the Jerry Conway and Paul Levitt's depictions. Hmm. You know, uh, this is Shag. You know, John, I actually, I think I'm going to disagree with you on that. Um, I agree that Power Girl was very brash, especially in reaction to pretty much anything Wildcat said or her cousin Superman. But beyond that, I mean, a lot of times she was just perfectly rational, whereas in Just League Europe, she's just angry all the time. Like, irrationally angry. Um, So with that said, I'm not sure I can agree with your last statement that our attitude in Just Like Europe pales in comparison to the pre-crisis. I'm not sure I agree with that one. But, hey, you made a great point there about how she was a strong female character that DC was not displaying at the time. Alright, so let's keep going. John's got a lot more great stuff to say. He says, all that being said, I give credit to Giffen and company for what they did with Power Girl and all the women that came and went in JLI. Think about it. Most of DC's Just League history was one woman in the group. Wonder Woman, or Black Canary, or mostly dissing Hawkgirl. Until the Detroit era, where they had a couple of C-listers, but not for very long. Truth be told, I fell in love with Power Girl thanks to Justice League Europe, and not just because of her natural assets. I'm working on getting every Power Girl appearance on any issues cover. The only thing I didn't like about Power Girl in the Justice League International era is how she was treated in the Teasdale Imperative. And then John goes on how to recap everything that happened. She got smacked by the Gray Man. She ends up in the hospital. Superman has to do surgery, etc. Uh, and then he says, Then we learned she can't fly. She's less invulnerable and weaker. Let me get to the point. I even felt back then, reading in real time, that someone at DC wanted to knock Power Girl down a peg. Because despite the ridiculous retcon of her Atlantean origin, she seemingly had Superman-level powers, which would make her even more powerful than Wonder Woman. DC didn't know what to do with Power Girl once John Byrne reset the Superman continuity, yet they kept her around for whatever reason. They abused her from Crisis forward, with Jeff Johns coming to the rescue and retconning that she's always a Kryptonian from Earth 2, paving the way for an amazing pre-Flashpoint solo book that was exceedingly popular. Yeah, John, so uh, a lot of this has been documented in other places, but now I'm just talking off my memory here. As I recall, yeah, she was depowered because, yeah, trying to separate her as much as they could from Superman to make Superman the only Kryptonian. Also, yeah, Yes, her power level was so strong. I mean, 
if you look at how strong she is, again, almost Superman level, what's the point of having her in the Justice League at that point? I mean, she she doesn't need the rest of the team. She should be able to take care of any situation. So how do you have a team where she's insanely overpowered compared to everyone else? And and again, they were just trying to make her a little more unique. So all, a lot of that's been documented. Also, the fact that uh, Giffen and them have said that they weren't really sure how to handle the character when they first got a hold of her. And it wasn't until later, uh, especially when she got the cat, they started to feel like they found a way to angle into her being the straight man or woman in the group. All right, then John said, uh, also shared over on social media, he shared his Booster Gold and Blue Beetle oval-shaped JLI pin from the classic days. That's awesome. Thank you so much, John, for all that great feedback. The order from DC Davis says, this is the first time I've actually read through an issue prior to listening to the podcast. 45 issues and never picked one up. But with the hype you've given this episode, I couldn't pass the idea of reading this without any recap or opinions. It was okay. It was fine. I don't recall being super excited or hooked by the end reveal 30 years ago, and I'm not necessarily hooked now. But I am interested to see where this goes and how it plays out. I have almost no memory of the storyline, so let's just see where this takes us. As for the Just Like Europe issue, uh, when is the, quote, Jenny Talks Power Girl <laughs> podcast happening? <laughs> because her insights on Kara are amazing. I'm a lifelong Kara fan since pre-crisis, and one of my very first DC Comics ever was Crisis on Earth Prime, off the stands, and immediately fell for Kara. Not in a sexualized way, despite being 12. It was her whole concept. As you said uh, this episode, Shag, this is an older version of Supergirl. I love the concept of her arriving much later on Earth 2 than Kal-El. Then Dave says, I thought Jenny's views were spot on. I remember really enjoying that Paul Kupperberg miniseries and was excited when she joined the Just League Europe. I was always interested in how she and our new Superman interacted. While she believed she was Kryptonian and was sad that it was never really addressed in a story. I wasn't happy with the Atlantean retcon of her origin, but I still was a fan of the character regardless. Then DC Dave says, let me end by saying I love the feedback section of the show. I always listen. And if you're not listening, then you're not going to hear me say boo to you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate that. In fact, that people do listen to the feedback section. That really means a lot because, again, this is really about building a community. It really is. All right. We're from Jimmy McGlinchey from the Irish Embassy. Uh, It says, Irish Embassy calling. Sorry for the absence and commenting, but when the Justice League Europe Embassy in Paris exploded, I immediately set about preparing the Irish Embassy for the arrival of the Justice League Europe team. Because I thought in my wisdom that of course Maxwell Lord would insist they would come here. I spent ages decorating the embassy, getting Jack-O-Lantern to buy loads of Three Stooges videos for Rex and importing tons of food for Flash's needs. Only to discover they moved to London. Ah! <laughs> Thank you so much, Jimmy. I, uh, I always say it, but I love your bits. I really do. Uh, regarding Just League America, it says, was a fun read. I am very much in the General Glory camp, and I think it's a great addition to the team and was able to counteract Guy's actions for a time thereafter. A few years after the Blahaha run of JLI, the Just League Quarterly did a General Glory-centric issue, written by Paul Kupperberg, where glory stories are told in the Golden Age and the Silver Age, drawn by Kurt Swan, a Dark Knight pastiche, and an image parody, which is very entertaining. Wow, you know, I vaguely remember that, Jimmy. I'm going to have to go back and check that out. That sounds like that would be an absolute hoot to revisit. Regarding Just League Europe, it was a cute story as well. And as you and Dr. Jennifer were talking about, I had a sudden brainwave that Stinky the Cat was now the second iconic cat that Marshall Rogers has drawn after the jokeified cat from the Laughing Fish story. He must have loved doing Stinky as there's a number of one-page tales of Stinky in a future version of Just League Quarterly, issue number three or four, I believe. Wow, I'm going to have to check those out too. Uh, and then Power Girl discussion was very entertaining, and Dr. Jennifer led a great discussion into the character. And you were asking where Power Girl is nowadays if she turns up in comics, and she's appearing in the One Star Squadron miniseries, which unfortunately is not a great vehicle for her, in my opinion. Ooh, okay, thanks for the warning, Jimmy. Uh, and also, I uh, got that same warning from a few other people. 
Uh, next, Roger Preeb shared his original sketch he got from Linda Medley of General Glory. Looks great. And finally, we'll give the last comment to Dr. Jennifer Sports Levine herself. She says, Ha! You're all so good for my ego. I swear, I'm going to link this discussion thread for my next review at work. <laughs> Seriously, though, thanks, gang. This has been such a warm and welcoming place. Aw, that's awesome, Jenny. Thanks so much, and really appreciate you participating in the comments. All right, folks, now this is the part of the show where we thank everyone who shared the show on their social media timeline, uh, Facebook and Twitter. I know it's a long list of names, people. I am well aware of that. Uh, but these folks help support and promote the show. And so to me, it's so important that we recognize them. I mean, they're really helping to get the word out there, and it's helping new people find the show. This time we got over 60 people sharing and retweeting the show. Thank you so much. So here is everyone who helped promote the last episode on Facebook and Twitter. Our thanks to Al Girding, Andre TFG, Between the Pages blog, Billy Delicious. Captain Freakout Psychedelic Radio, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Clinton Robinson and his accounts Coffee and Comics, Days of High Adventure Podcast, and Fan Films Fridays Podcast, Damian Drought Whiter, Dave's Comic Heroes Blog, Derek Crabb, Dr. Jennifer Swartz Levine, Chuck Coletta at Dr. Pop Culture BGSU, Frederico Hernandez, Geek to Me Radio, Gus Casals, The Hunters Podcast, and the Right On Network, Jeff Polier, Jeff Weinberg, Joe Tonello, John Coos, John Wilson, Jose Rivera, Justin Steiner, Keechi Baker, Lizanne Oswald, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matt Anderson, Matthew Cody, Max Romero, Maz at Mazinger1978, Michael Kramer, Michael Thomas, Mick Jameson, Mike Dinas, Mike Jameson, Nicholas Alheim, Olivo Lima, Paul Kean, Pop Culture Affidavit, Pragmatic Gollum, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Rob Kelly and his Mountain Comics, For All Mankind Super Friends Podcast, Superman Movie Minute, and Treasury Comics Accounts. Roger Preeb, Rolled Spine Podcast, Scott X, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Sean Ross, Secret Wars on Infinite Earths Comic Book Fights, Siskoid, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, Symbol Pending, The Pat at Pat Stuff NS, The Voice of Paul, Tim Price, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Zeb Oswald, and Zek Cap Boots. Woof! My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast, folks. You know, your feedback is, I always say, it's such a critical part of the show. And this community of JLI fans we're building together is absolutely amazing. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, seriously, I'm very, very sorry. It is probably the fault of Andy Capellish or Dr. Jennifer Swartz-Levine. All right, let's face it, it's probably Andy's fault. Now, let me know uh, if I missed you, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. So please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Uh, you can go out to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. That is where most of the conversation is going on. Leave your comments on the show post. You can also find us on Facebook as Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast, on Twitter at JLI Podcast, or our email address is podcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Andy Capellish and Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine for appearing on the most recent episode of the show. And thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback. Now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we'll check in with Laurel at our New York episode. It was the dawn of the third age of podcasting, 30 years after the series had launched. The Babylon podcast was a dream given form. Its goal, to discuss the place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, home away from home for established fans, newbies, John, Blaine, and guests. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It could be a dangerous place. Wait, what? But it's our last, best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2024. The name of the podcast is... Babylon 5, 30 Years Later.
born out of violence, adopted in chaos. Teenager Cassandra Kane is seeking the answer to a question. If nurture can undo nature, raised to be an assassin, Cassandra is trying to burn the pages of her past and write a whole new future. So I'm throwing gasoline Avengers And I'm lighting matches with my pain Now I'm sitting in front of those who burn me As I watch my past go up in flames Up in You can write to us at thehuntresspodcast.com or go to Twitter at Huntress Podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your other podcatchers. This podcast shares a feed with the Huntress Podcast, the Bad Girl Cassandra Kane Podcast. Cheers. All right, folks, we're back for break. And yes, Laurel is here with us. So thank you so much, Laurel, for being here. I really appreciate you being on the show. I've been really looking forward to podcasting together for a very long time. I'm glad we finally found a way to make it happen. Would you please tell the people at home where they can find you on the interwebs? Well, as I've said throughout this whole thing, I'm on the Huntress podcast. And you can find us on the Right On Network. That's W-R-I-G-H-T, the Right On Network. You can also find us at thehuntresspodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at Mountainflower1, again, without the vowels, M-T-N-F-L-W-R-1. We'd love to hear from you. So if you want to reach out to us at any point, that would be wonderful. Uh, We'd love to hear from people. We're also do, as I said, the Birds of Prey podcast. There's the Outcasters podcast. There's a Cassandra Kane Batgirl podcast. So there's lots of things on the Right On Network for folks to get into. There's also a Doctor Who podcast and a Blake 7 podcast. There is so much good stuff over there on the Right On Network, folks. If you haven't checked it out, why are you wasting your time here? Seriously, go, go away, go now. So uh, again, Laurel, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Shag. I appreciate you having me on. Finally, we got to do this together. Yay, I'm so happy. This is awesome. Well, folks, that is going to do it. So come back next episode when we cover Justice League America number 47 and Justice League Europe number 23. And we'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You know how this works. It's not a trick. It's not a surprise. It's the same every month. You're just going to have to find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Laurel. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make make something something of it? it?